This is Andercast, inspiring business stories from the UCLA community without the tuition costs. Welcome to Andercast. I'm your host, Mike Chester. Today we have two of my favorite classmates, Jose Gomez and Federico Sacchini. They are both Venezuelans, and I've invited them on to talk about what's unfolded there. Economic crisis and political instability have ravaged Venezuela since 2013. Over 3 million citizens have fled the country in the face of food and medicine shortages, hyperinflation has made the local currency nearly worthless, and President Trump recently called on the Venezuelan military to turn against President Nicolas Maduro and join forces with opposition leader Juan Guaido. I am the first to admit that I don't have the fullest grasp of exactly how we got to this point, and I think there's no better way to learn than talking to Jose and Federico. Really appreciate you guys joining, and I can't imagine what it's like for you and your families going through this. Let's start with a little bit of background on each of you. Uh, where are you from in Venezuela? What did you do before business school? Let's uh, start with Jose. Hey, sure. So I'm originally from Acarigua, um, a small city in Venezuela. I grew up there. Um, I mean, growing up in Acarigua, I had a good childhood and I had good access to education, but I always had an aspiration to go to college uh, abroad. And I think that was instilled by my parents from very young age. They always encouraged me to go to good university in the United States, I think in part because they didn't go to college themselves and they value education a lot. And also because they always looked up to the U.S. as kind of like the example in the world in terms of education and economic dominance, right? So that's exactly what I did. After high school, I went to school here in the U.S. and then stayed working here for a few years before Anderson. What about you, Fede? Uh, in my case, I'm, so I'm 32 years old. I'm from Caracas, Venezuela, the capital. I was living in, I, I've lived in Venezuela my whole life before Anderson. I'm a civil engineer. I studied in, in Caracas in Universidad Católica Andres Bello, then graduated and started working in the family business. We have a real estate family business only in Venezuela. We've been, my, my father and uncle started it and they've been operating since 30, 35 years ago. So I joined the family business, worked there for six years, you know, kind of the learning curve flattened a little bit. That coupled with the situation of Venezuela, I wanted kind of a change and ended up here in Anderson to, you know, change things a little bit and eventually want to go back to Venezuela. Venezuela is a beautiful country and beautiful people live there. So tell me about the Venezuela you guys grew up in. So it changed. And, and I always put this example. I have younger cousins that are not that linked to Venezuela because they, they lived the later part of the Venezuela I lived in, which changed, as I mentioned. Um, the first part was high school and first years of, of undergrad was awesome. I mean, you had a little bit of inflation, you had a little bit of safety issues, but nothing hectic, nothing you know, crazy. And so you could make a living there and, and it was fun. I mean, if you could, I always say this, if you could choose maybe a co- two countries, three countries out of the whole world to, to live in, Venezuela would be one of those. Uh, it's just, it has everything. Within 12 hour distance, you can find, you know, waterfalls, the biggest waterfall in, in the world. You can find, you know, like a little Maldives, a 45 minute plane from Caracas. You could have desert sands, dunes, sand dunes, and five hours from the capital, um, jungle. It's just beautiful. And we have, you know, oil, we have gold, we have, it's just, and, and it's tropical. The weather is tropical. And so, and, and we're in front of the Caribbean. And so it's just an amazing country. Um, however, in the later part, things started getting worse and worse. And I actually, before coming here to Anderson, just to give you an, a quick example, I almost got kidnapped. 
And that kind of made me, you know, rethink my life and say like, hey, do I want to put my life at stake? Kidnappings are pretty common there, right? That's, it's pretty, pretty common. From first hand, I can tell seven or eight stories about kidnaps, uh, including family members. Um, Jose, is that your experience too? Yeah, I mean, growing up in Venezuela, there always, always was the fear that you could either get kidnapped or get killed at gunpoint. I mean, personally, I have two family members that got kidnapped. And like Federico, I mean, uh, at least uh, six or a dozen of people, my friends, people that I know that got kidnapped as well. So it's, it's a very common thing. And for me, I mean, uh, things really changed or the inflection point for in my view in Venezuela happened around 2004, which is right around the time when I came uh, to the United States. And I like to make the distinction 2004 because I think that's when things got really, really radical in Venezuela or, or when things started to deteriorate. So leading up to 2004, Chavez got elected in 99, right? And okay. between 99 and 2004, his focus was to uh, reduce checks and balances in the country and centralize power around the executive branch. And they did that by creating a new constitution and eliminating Congress. And because of that, the opposition started to form a coalition and opposed to the things that Maduro was doing, or, or Chavez was doing, which was centralizing power around the executive branch. And that led to a really big protest in April of 2004 that forced Chavez to resign. But 24 hours later, he came back to power. And I think he came back with a conviction to ensure that something like that would never happen again, and then to ensure that his uh, regime would be extended for a, as long as possible. And that's when you start to see a, a lot of radical actions in Venezuela take place, such as the attack on free press or freedom of speech uh, by closing TV stations and radio stations that were against the government. Uh, the direct attack against uh, private companies by nationalizing major uh, producers in Venezuela and also attacking any company that had uh, a opposite view to that of the government. Yeah, I think those are kind of the two main things so, that you saw from that point on. And things have escalated uh, since that point onto what we have today, which is a total mess. But while Chavez was uh, trying to take on more power and, and really tighten his hold on the, the presidency, he was doing a lot of good things for the poor at the time, right? Or at least that's my understanding. Up until 2004, I wouldn't say that was the case because the um, spending on social kind of like things started right around 2004 when checks and balances have been deteriorated and power was centralized around the government. Uh, in fact, in 2005, five, the Congress or the National Assembly at the time was fully controlled by the government, right? So that deterioration of checks and balances and decentralization of power around Chavez is what allowed him to start just spending all the money that he wanted and increase his popularity as a result of that. It's interesting to see that the popularity of Chavez is almost completely correlated to the amount of spending, social spending that he did throughout his re regime. And, and Mike, you, you mentioned that, that he did a lot of things uh, for the poor. It's relative because would you rather have someone give you food or learn you uh, or teach you how to cook and, and that's the thing that um, because of oil prices he had a lot of money and so he gave it away in, 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 in a way that it's not sustainable and, and I think that was a big mistake and so um, when oil prices decline and production decline because they, they mismanaged uh, a lot of things then you, you're left with nothing in your hands and so that, that's a big problem. Yeah, and just to echo what Federico said, uh, they didn't invest in capital, technology, nor infrastructure during those years. All that money went through social good, and then all the, the dollars that came from the oil industry started to come in. They started to stop to come in. That's when, okay, we no longer have 
productive means to make the goods and services that we consume. We cannot import that anymore. So that's when the shorter you start. Yeah, so that there's overspending going on. They're just assuming that oil prices are going to continue to rise. There, yeah. There's no preparation for that point where oil prices start to drop. Yep. Yeah. And, and we've seen this in, in our program, in, in the MBA, that results doesn't necessarily correlate to good decisions. And the amount of money that was in Venezuela during the Chavez era kind of hides the bad decisions he made throughout his uh, regime. And that's what people think that Chavez was a great president, uh, uh, but he didn't make good decisions, in my opinion. I think he just had a lot of money. So what, what do people think of him, like looking back on his presidency and, and seeing everything that unfolded? He, he passed away in 2013. Are all the people that, that he helped or, or appeared to be helping, like do people still strongly revere him and support him or do they kind of blame him for what's taken place? They worship him. Yeah. They don't like Maduro. Yeah. And the thing is that we, we have a, a very uneducated population. And so that's a struggle. And when you have that, it's a very short-sighted um, view. They, they, they don't look, they don't see the long run. And so they just see, I have food today. I have a good life today. I'm happy today. And that's 100% correlated to Chavez. That was during Chavez era. So I love Chavez. I don't have food today. I don't, I, I, you know, I'm struggling today. I hate Maduro. I don't like Maduro. And so they, they don't see, you know, that there's some lag between decisions and, you know, uh, reality. And so that's a problem. I don't know what's your take Yeah, on I agree with Federico. I think uh, spending in social good is a good thing. The problem is when that money is spent without checks and balances, yeah. right? without someone on the opposite end telling you, okay, you shouldn't be spending that there. You should look at this other part of uh, the economy, right? And that's what happened with Chavez. He had all the largesse from the oil bonanza, and then all that money was spent without checks and balances. As a politician that is currently in office, what would you do in order to increase your popularity? Do you do that direct transfers of money to the people that needed the most because that's how you buy votes, right? So that, that's the problem, I think, that we had in Venezuela for a very long time, the lack of checks and balances, and then Chavez spending all this money like he wanted. And at the time, as all this was going on, so say 2004 to, to 2013, he, he's spending a lot trying to help people. He's, he's tightening his grasp on the, the presidency. It, were people talking about that or were people just thinking like, oh, this is great? I, I think well, people were just thinking this is great. I think economists thought the first approach you, you mentioned, but the majority of the Venezuelans, I think, took the, the, the second approach. Yeah. And if you look at his popularity around that time of the old bonanza, it was like 70, 80%. So it was ridiculous, right? And again, because of those cash transfers to, to, to the people. And, and again, Mike, if you have a lot of money in your account, you, you know, if someone takes out $5 of your account or you, you're not, you know, you're not paying attention to those small diesels, you're, you're, you're wealthy. I think that happened. In the in the Chavez era, there was a lot of money. People weren't paying that you know close yeah. attention to things. Now that things tighten, now all the things you know popped up. Just to give you an example, like uh, people would get, I mean, free food, but in the hype of this whole oil uh, bonanza, people would get free houses. They would get free electronics, like refrigerator stuff, and like a lot of people would get that. A lot of poor people. So how could you not favor a politician that is giving you a free house, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, that would be hard to, to turn down. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in 2013, um, oil prices start to decline, right? Were, were people aware how much the economy was dependent on oil prices? I think oil prices, I mean, dropped in 2013, uh, around $80 per barrel, but the real drop took place in 2015. Okay. And 
I, I would say that the dropping off prices was not the cause of the crisis, but rather the triggering event that led to the crisis. Yeah. The cause of the crisis is what we spoke earlier. The fact that the government attacked the private sector, productive means within the country were eliminated, we imported everything from abroad, and then when the oil prices dropped, then we realized, oh, we don't have the production means to produce the things that we consume in the country, and we no longer can import from abroad. In fact, I think businesses in Venezuela during that time frame declined on the range of 80 to 90% companies closed in Venezuela. So that's, that's the magnitude of the problem that we had. And when the money started to flow in, that's when things really got bad within the country. I want to take two minutes to kind of explain, try to explain how Venezuela ended up in this situation in, in, in very simple terms, adding on to what Jose said. <clears throat> it all comes down to economy 101, uh, supply and demand. In the Chavez era, he started attacking the private sector, right? And he had this Robin Hood mentality. Uh, take from the rich and give to the poor. The, the poor part, I, I agree. I, I totally support that. Taking from the rich, I, I don't totally support that. So he started attacking the private sector through, you know, nationalization of, of, of industry factories. And he started regulating prices. Mm -hmm. So the private sector said, hey, I'm not willing. Oh, he, he created a fear in the private sector. So a lot of factories started shutting down, started running out of business. And so less supply, same demand, prices go even up. So more high, higher prices, more regulation. So more regulation, less private sector. So less supply. So you, you start seeing, understanding the imbalance between supply and demand. And so all of a sudden you have a black market is created. And new jobs are created. A lot of middlemen and a contact game. Um, so th that, that's essentially in a nutshell what happened. And that gap between what the country is demanding and what the country is supplying you need to fill that gap, especially in, on basic needs, on milk and eggs and food and yeah. medicine. Yeah. And so if so they the private importing all of that. Yeah. Stuff. So if the yeah. private sector is not doing it anymore because of what I just ex explained, who else is going to do it? And you need to, the, the government is the one that's doing it now. And so, but what's the, what's the source of income of the government? It's the oil. And that's how, in a nutshell, how a country ended up being so dependent on oil. Because the whole economy is dependent on the revenue that comes from the oil to import the whole, the whole economy. Because the private sector is not operating in Venezuela because of that Robin Hood mentality and asteroids that Chavez imposed. Yeah, just to add some context, I agree with everything that Federico said. And uh, yeah, in terms of price controls, that's been a really bad thing in, for the private sector. Uh, I'll give you an example of my uh, family business, which is in the chicken industry. So... Imagine that the price per pound on the market for chicken was uh, $5 per pound, right? And uh, the cost of production to get a chicken to a supermarket is $3 per pound. And all of a sudden, the government tells you, no, you need to sell the pound of chicken for 50 cents, right? So all of a sudden, the government is forcing you to sell at a loss. And that's why a lot of private sector companies also closed. And it's, for anyone operating in the private sector in Venezuela, it's very hard because of the price controls. and almost impossible and if you sustain this for 10 years then you get hyperinflation you yeah. don't have products you have demand and just you know things yeah, can, can balance you, at a high super high price explain how hyperinflation happens so quickly like the, the sense that i get is that let's take the example of your family in the chicken industry they know that the next time they need to to buy raw materials it, the price is going to go up so to anticipate that they have to raise their own prices and it just becomes this endless cycle that that builds on itself 
Yeah, I think in part is what Federico is saying that uh, the supply of the inputs to produce a good went down. So all of a sudden, people are competing for the same goods, but at a higher bargaining price, right? Because you just have fewer supply. You're just going to pay yeah. more. That's part of it, right? On the economic side, the monetary part, the central bank doesn't have autonomy in Venezuela. So the government pretty much printed money, whatever they wanted in the central bank. And that increased a lot of the liquidity without the supply that leads to hyperinflation, right? Did and, they do that once they started to feel the economic crisis? They just started printing money? Yeah, I think so. Because on 2015, that's when the all money start, started to get into the country. So that's when they started to print a lot of money to kind of like balance it out. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's what led to the hyperinflation um, or in part what, what started the hyperinflation. Yeah. You, you, and Mike, you're thinking, I think, the hyperinflation from a cost, uh, a cost reposition perspective, like how, you know, how much is going to cost me to replenish my inventory and then put a margin on top of that. That's how much I'm going to sell it. But I think it, that's not the price you sell. You, if you go today and sell a box of X at 100 and you realize that they took it out of your hands, and you can really sell it at 200, then next day you're gonna sell at 200. And yeah. that's what's happened. People yeah. are desperate for, for goods yeah. and, and just prices go up. The thing mm. is you have regulated things that cannot, you know, on the supermarkets, you cannot find them at higher high prices. But the, the, the reality is that people take out those regulated products and then turn around and sell them on, on the black market and make a 10X profit or whatever. And so it's, it's just crazy. A, yeah. a very, very few companies are oper operating at a very low margins or even at a loss. Um, I think there's one that's Polar, that is like the biggest uh, company in Venezuela. At least they say that, that there's some of their products, they're operating like as a, you know, compromise to the Venezuelan community, like keep producing milk, for example. Yeah. But that's yeah. not sustainable. That, that could, you know, that could hold for maybe a couple of years, a few years, but then it's no one, no one is doing business for a loss. Yeah. And things got so bad that the government started stopped publishing uh, official figures in 2015. They stopped publishing inflation figures. Uh, they stopped publishing like poverty rates, like all across no the data. border. No data. no data. There's no data. In and that was after Maduro came into power, right? Yeah. And I think that's because things got so bad that they had to start hiding the official figures. Otherwise, like, I, I mean, they start to hide the truth, right? That, that's my perspective. Yeah. And then again, the difference between Maduro and Chavez, I think... Because Maduro was like kind of groomed by Chavez, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like he was chosen by Chavez, yeah. essentially. But I think uh, besides having two different figures um, in power, the, the reality of the, the difference in, in what the Venezuelan community experience is the drop in oil prices when Maduro got into power and the reliance on oil that the, that, that the country has. And I would describe Maduro as Chavez without the charisma. That's yeah. pretty much who Maduro yeah. is. So when did you guys start to realize, I'm assuming it would have been in 2015, that, that things were, were going to get out of control? Or, or what was the first sign that, that trouble was ahead for you guys personally? Um, I was living in 2015 in, in Venezuela, I never like forecasted, you know, oh, things are going so bad, I'm gonna leave the country. No, it was more like that short-term mentality because I mean, I'm Venezuelan, I'm living in Venezuela, I'm loving living in Venezuela, I'm working, I'm, I'm happy, it's my, it's, it's my soil. Uh, so I never like thought it about it too much until things really got crazy. They say that you have 
safety issues in Venezuela, you have uh, medicine problems and you have food problems. I think in the the higher part of the society, the, the order is safety first and then the other two. In the lower part of the society, the what the, the biggest problem is they don't find food, all right? In my case, I, I almost got kidnapped. A cousin of mine got kidnapped a year before that. And I'm like, oh my God. At that moment, I started like rethinking, like, is it, you know, and I, I talked to my family and like, is it worth to still live here? You know, something bad could happen to our family and, and we got to rethink it, you know? But before that, I've never thought about it. We, and and uh, we have an anchor as well, which is the family business. Um, you're not thinking of, you know, leaving the family business. What about you, Jose? I mean, I left Venezuela in 2005, right? So yeah. I, I left really early on. But I mean, if you ask me what are the points of concern, like throughout the entire time frame, 2004 is one for me, uh, the radicalization yeah. of the government. I would say 2015 was another one when the oil prices dropped. And the next one would have to be uh, 2017 uh, when Maduro uh, won a contest because it wasn't even an election. It was an illegitimate. Yeah, it was looked uh, at as a, a fraud, right? The, yeah. the re-election. Not even a fraud. Uh, what he did is that he wasn't due for elections until, until 2019. And his popularity was so low that he thought by bringing the elections sooner than planned, he would regain popularity. For one thing, that's against the Constitution, and it would have to be approved by the National Assembly. But at the time, the National Assembly was controlled by the opposition. So there was never going to be that taking place, right? They were never going to advance the elections to, to, to help him gain popularity. So what he did is that he created a committee of pro-Maduro people and basically declared that the power of the National Assembly was now going to be transferred to this new committee that he had created. And then he asked the committee to move the elections from 2019 to 2017. Of course, the opposition boycotted the elections. Nobody voted. I'm sure you didn't vote, nor your family. Nobody voted. How did the citizens react to this? No one voted, man. A election turnout in Venezuela has always been on the ratio of like 75-80%, really high. This time around, it was like low 30s, wow. a high 20s. So very low turnout. And it wasn't even an election. It was a contest because it was illegitimate, illegal. And of course, he won them. And, and that's when you start seeing Guaido emerge as a leading figure, him being the president of the legitimate National Assembly, taking power and declaring himself as a president because Maduro had broken the laws and he no longer was the legitimate president of Venezuela. It's like if Trump would bring the elections from 2020 to today because his popularity is high by creating a new committee and transferring the power of Congress to that new committee and then the, that committee bringing elections sooner than planned. At that point, you would say he's a dictator. He's no longer the legitimate president. Well, that's what happened in Venezuela. And I would assume there were people were, were pretty upset about this. There would be a lot of protests in the streets at that point. The other part of the Venezuelans don't understand this as much. And that's the sad part. They don't kind of understand what's going on and how does the... You and he's know... controlling the media at this point too, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, well. Even though with social media, things have changed a little bit on the past, I don't know, three to five years. He nationalized uh, two of the biggest channels in Venezuela. Yeah. And, and that was a thing that you see throughout the whole regime, like the attack on free speech in Venezuela. I mean, we used to have a very open uh, communication in Venezuela. And starting in 2004, the attacks against the press that spoke against the government started, uh, I mean, nationalizing different TV chains, radio station, closing them down arbitrarily, uh, putting in jail anyone uh, that spoke against the government or closing their businesses. You almost had to stay quiet unless you were really courageous and 
were willing to take that risk of uh, going to jail or having your business closed exactly. down. Exactly. Yeah. And at this point, is Maduro, does he have any sort of long-term plan that he's presenting to the public of, of why he needs to be reelected and why um, he's going to be able to fix this over anybody oh, else? No. Oh, no. Yeah. Definitely not. Well, not long ago, like a month ago, we had the power, power out, outage yeah. in the whole country, nationwide, almost a week without power. No, air, uh, no power in airports, hospitals. It's crazy. Um, the Walking Dead, I, I saw like a video or an article that did the similarity with, the, with Walking Dead, it's and it's crazy. exactly like that. It's crazy. And the government is blaming the... They blame the, the U.S., yeah, right? Yeah, they blame the U.S. Yeah. It's, it's, it's even funny. It's like... They oh called it a terrorist attack, Yeah, the right? terrorist attack. A cyber attack. A cyber, cyber attack. 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 It's, just, it's just like, how, how can you, you know, how can you have the balls to, put, you know, say that? It's just crazy. The videos are funny, man. If you look at Maduro speaking about, like, the cyber attack that was done through radiation, you know, no, like, satellite signals. I mean, it's just crazy, man. It's, it's just crazy, crazy. talk. Um, but again, it's that principle that they've always followed, which is hiding the truth and putting a mock-up story and convincing people about that mock-up story, right? And if you don't have education, you're probably going to believe them. Yeah, yeah. so the, the uneducated, you, you, you feel, are still supporting Maduro and, and buying into everything that he says. I mean, the popularity right now is very 20%, low. less yes, than 20%. Very low. It's, wow. very, it's low. very low. But again, in part, it's because there's no longer that old money that there's no longer those uh, cash transfers to people and the popularity has just plummeted. And how does he entice the people around him, like the, the people that he put in place instead of the National Assembly? Like, are, are, is he just making sure that they're well compensated? Yes. Like, how do they, how do they support it? So there's strategists. They, they, they have a, not too much money, but they have some, and they use that scarce resource in a very strategic way. And so they... They are in power of of the weapons and the military, yeah. essentially, and especially the the high the high um, in the hierarchy pyramid, the the high part of the military, and and so what they do is that they make sure that they compensate well the high you know ranks of the politicians and the the, the military, and what I've seen happen is that since they don't have cash money, what they do is that or he's done is that he's given military like sectors and and to put an example let's say you guys are in charge of the agriculture you guys are in charge of the construction industry you guys are in charge of the import export the uh aduana the, yeah, the ports the ports you guys are in charge of uh, the streets and so all of a sudden you have like gangs military gangs that control those industries and that's the, their source of income and mm-hmm. to be an example you're in the construction industry and so you got uh rebars coming a, a truck full of rebars coming into your uh site you get 10 military if you want to have this truck if you want to unload this truck you got to pay me this and that if you're in the ports the same if you're in the agriculture oh you want to produce this 30 percent of the production needs to come to me it's not cash prices but it's like very strategically they've uh, divided the country and say you are in charge of this you're in charge of this and that way that he keeps them happy and and uh, loyal to him yeah uh, yeah i agree with federico that that's how he keeps his loyalty in the chicken industry what happened is that uh, he pretty much the biggest companies are now controlled by the military people uh, they were most of them nationalized or taken away from uh, the owners right and uh, basically all the raw material that comes from abroad goes to those companies, the grains, the soy, that kind of stuff to make the material or the food to feed the chicken. 
they control all of that, right? So they have almost a monopoly of the industry. That's just the example of that particular industry. But across the border, so controlled by the military that are now loyal to him because that's how they get their money, right? Through controlling these companies. So what happened to your family's chicken? Uh, so what they had to do is basically the majority of their supply chain now is shut down, all the production part of, of the company. But luckily for them, they also have um, a chain of restaurants, right? Okay. Uh, so when you sell something in a restaurant that's not regulated, so you can price based on what the market uh, price is today. And then they get the chickens now from some of these companies, which they have to pay whatever they ask, even though it's regulated. But since they're, they're military people, they can do whatever they want. So they're just surviving basically right now. Just wait, wait and see uh-huh. if things change. So and for example, in, 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 and, and I want to just one, one more yeah. story uh, that kind of depicts this social crisis in Venezuela and, and in general, in all Latin America, you have this culture of you have people working in, in houses they, uh, because of all the scarcity of products uh, in, in houses. Um, in, in, and I'm going to put the example of my house. They, they asked my mother if they could bring their clothes to, to do laundry because they couldn't find, you know, uh, detergent. Um, and so the first day was okay. The second day was okay. The third day, they were doing laundry for the whole block. Everybody. Everybody. And so it's that, it's just sad, but yeah. it's, it's that social crisis that it affected me so, so much because I do want to help, but it, how, you know, where, do you, draw where the line? do you draw the line, right? Yeah. And so it's just awful. 2018, it's, it sounds like there's another like sham re-election by Maduro. Is that, that the case? Yeah, it's, right. he won a contest. He did the same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. But it's not an election. It's it's illegitimate. It's just a popularity contest to legitimize himself. That's a great word. It's it's just a contest. Yeah. And so uh, he got inaugurated earlier this year. And his opponent, leader of the opposition, Wang Guaido, he cites some emergency powers from the Constitution and claims the presidency himself, right? Right. Correct. How did people react to that? The Constitution says that if there's a void of power, then the president of the National Assembly takes power for a period of time until he calls elections. From their point of view, it was legitimate, yeah. but from, you know, for the so whole world, the it was illegitimate. Assembly. So he just yeah. um, applied that clause from the constitution, Waido, I'm, 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 I'm talking about Waido, uh, where there was a void of power. And so it was his uh, duty to, to take presidency. I've read articles that say that not a lot of people was expecting this. It was kind of a surprise. And I think it was, it was part of the strategy because if you, if you let people know beforehand, then the, as I told you, the government is pretty strategic. And so they start, they start little like blocking that from happening. And so they were very silent about it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it happened. And how did Maduro respond to this? Yeah. I mean, his response, I mean, has been pretty mute. He almost acts like nothing has happened and things are going well, business as usual. It's really weird, man. It's uh, like uh, another world almost, the way he acts. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, he, he's acted also through repression, like the protests, always attacking people, throwing them to jail. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think those attacks have increased. Uh, yeah, in Caracas, you probably have seen it more. Uh, yeah, I, I think he's scared. Because typically, if you know you get like a focal point like this, like the white doll, and he being of trouble for, for Maduro, he's, he just puts him into jail or something. He hasn't. 
which means that he's kind of scared. Guaido has the U.S. and yeah, and the U.S. US and other backed. countries have recognized um, him as the, the yeah. Well, president. not only recognized, but says that you know Marco Rubio, for example, the the, the, the governor in Florida yeah, says senator. that the senator, sorry, in in Florida says that if he if 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 they touch Guaido, you know, they're gonna get into trouble. Threats like that. Um, that have prevented, in my opinion, the Maduro regime to kind of take action on Guaido. But they've, for example, they took the right hand of Guaido, put him into, or yeah. disappeared him for, I think, one night. And so, but the next day he appeared. And so it's like that game. It's it's literally like, Just letting you like know. I don't know, 500 years ago. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. Well, and I mean, the attack is not on Guaido, but the people around him and the people that show up at the protests, right? Like that are happening almost every day now. So people get killed in those protests. Like every time there's a protest, there's a few people killed. Every other week, there's someone from the opposition that is taken as a political prisoner. And no one knows about them sometimes for even a week, two weeks. Like you don't know their health state or what they're doing with them. Like it's very, I don't know, very impulsive, very... It's a behavior that is intended to intimidate, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but they don't touch Guaido because that's kind of like, like he said, it's... Uh, it's like yeah. the red line. Yeah, it's a red cross. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like Maduro, in, in response to this as well, has started to cut off any aid from the U.S. or um, prevented any kind of supplies or food coming into the country to benefit people as well. Yes. Uh, Richard Branson put together this concert, raised money to you know bring food and aids to Venezuela, and the, the trucks couldn't get in. And yeah, it's, it's just been a problem, Mike. And mm. I think the government, again, is all about uh, creating an image that everything is okay, right? Yeah. They've always hidden the truth and they've put a mock show in front of people, right? So the moment they accept the aid, it's almost like they're declaring defeat and saying, okay, we need the aid, right? So for us to continue putting this mock image, we're going to deny the aid because we don't need it. It's kind yeah. of like their strategy, I think. And so. then uh, the blackout started recently as well. The, mm -hmm. And so it, obviously they claimed it was a, a terrorist attack, but is it more so just the infrastructure was so poor that they just didn't have the money to keep the power running? Exactly. The main source of power for, for Venezuela is an hydroelectric dam that we have on the south part of the country. And, that, you know, you have huge turbines and you need preventive maintenance for those. Um, and it's not like, oh, one turbine is it's out, let's fix it tomorrow. That takes time. And so I think this is not a problem of, of a month ago uh, or this month. Uh, this is a problem that uh, Venezuela is gonna experience for, for a few months to come. Yeah. Um, it's not easy to fix. You need uh, money, it's tailored turbines. You know, we need to fix one turbine, let's just buy another one. It's not like that. And, and the crisis on, on the power industry, I mean, it started going back to 2010. In fact, in Venezuela in 2010, we had like a blackout for about a week or a little bit less than a week. And at that point, Chavez declared a national emergency in the electrical sector. And he created all these committees to increase the investment in the power industry. Numbers are not clear, but some people say that uh, there were upwards of hundreds of billions of dollars uh, that were supposed to go intended for the power sector and they just got stolen away by um, whoever he gave them to, right? And yeah, and, and, and the power industry is just an example of what has happened across other industries as well. When you nationalize those industries, they're not well managed, you don't invest in infrastructure, capital, technology, long run, those businesses are going to go out of business, right? So. And that, that's where we are today, right? Yep. Yep. What do you guys think can be done to fix the situation? It's difficult, Mike, because you, you can fix the symptoms or you can fix the cause. 
it's very difficult to fix the cost, uh, which is, you know, just fixing the whole changing the government and changing the mentality. It's that's difficult. As of now, I would say it's important. We can help by, you know, treating the symptoms and the symptoms is, you know, people are starving. So, you know, raise money to to help the kids and, and Venezuela send medicine, food or, you know, things like that. Actually, Jose and I started like a fundraising here in Anderson, what, two weeks ago, kind of put a, put a raffle together to raise money to give to nonprofit foundation in Venezuela that it's run by a friend of mine, very serious. Um, he graduated from Harvard and he's, he's dedicated his life in, 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 into the, this helping through a nonprofit organization. And so like things like that, I think it's the, how can we help? Um, What's I the don't best think- way for people to donate to that? We could put it, if you're going to upload it in Instagram, we could put the, um, the Venmo we'll account. Yeah, yeah, okay. We include it. But yeah, that's one way. I don't, I don't know because bringing awareness, it's, it's important. It's just that I don't see this government, a, a, cha- a changing government through an international or external movement. I see it internally. And so how can Manchester help yeah. internally? It's, it's just, I don't see it possible feasible i just see mike chester helping with the uh, starving kids i just see mike chester helping you know with the symptoms yeah, yeah. not with the cost and what do you think about a, an international solution kind of some sort of intervention jose you think that's that wouldn't do the trick at this point it's it's difficult man because uh, the crisis is so bad and, and people are dying of hunger that something radical needs to happen right uh, because things need to change people are dying people uh, kids are being born and they don't have uh, they, they, they don't have the nutrition so you have a lot of like mental problems because of that pretty much every kid that is being born under poverty conditions is growing up with mental uh, conditions uh, and people are dying right everyone's emigrating so something radical needs to happen i don't think international intervention is the right thing i think the international support is very important which is what's happening now but then pressure needs to continue uh, to build up on the government and it needs to happen fast and like Federico said it has to be internally with the support of the international community, I think, yeah. So So Trump recently asked that the military in Venezuela turn against Maduro and support Guaido. Do you think that's going to happen? I mean, that should happen, absolutely. If if you ask me, okay, what's the the thing that should happen? Absolutely. That's the one thing that Guaido needs on his side, right? The problem is that um, Maduro has built the loyalty with the military through distributing all the major industries. So they have a stake in having Maduro continue to be in power because if he gets out of the power, that's going to change, right? So they have a financial stake associated with that. The other thing is that, yeah, there's the military in Venezuela. There's the uh, gangs that have uh, that Maduro has created called the Colectivos, which, was, which are improvised gangs that pretty much attack people when they're in protests and stuff like that. That's another layer. And then the other part is that we've had a lot of influx from like the guerrilla, the, the, from Colombia, the ELN, and uh, like narco uh, drug money associated with that. Yeah. So that's another element there that, uh, that, 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 yeah, that could keep him in power, right? So yeah, the military could turn around, but then you have all these two other elements that, yeah, are an important force for him, I think, and that's my opinion, yeah. If you asked me three weeks ago, I would have said that I think an international intervention was possible or feasible. Now I don't. It's, and this is like an information war that we get. You know, you, you hear this article or you, you read this article, you hear this podcast, you, and then you start like, you don't know what's true, you don't know what's not. 
I heard like a month ago, ex-US Navy, Navy that served six years around Venezuela and knows the military and all that very well. He serves for the Carlisle Group now. Uh, he's an advisor for the Carlisle Group. And he, he gave a good, like an interesting number. The US has made a military intervention in the past, I think, 100 years for like 60, 60 times. So it's more than you would think. Okay. And so that I'm like, oh my God, you know, the US are going to come and they're going to help us out. But then you hear this Russian comedians that contacted this US politician and acted as one of one, another, like there were another people. And the US, this US politician was like, yeah, no, we're not inter, you know, we're not entering. Yeah. And so you get this type, you know, this information from one hand and an information from another hand. And so you get confused. You don't know what's happening. Now, a change needs to come internally with the support of the international community, but it needs to come internally. And if you look at the military, the top part of the military is supporting Maduro. The bottom part is just as any other Venezuelan. They're leaving all the struggles that every Venezuelan is leaving. And so they do want to change. But there, there has been some cases where people have like uprised and they've either end up killed or in jail. And so that creates like, you know, that, that, that's in the back of the memory of all the pos potential, you know, military that wants to uh, raise their voice or, or do something about it. And there's another thing that I want to add that is that they're, they're struggling, but they're better than the average Venezuelan. And that's a, that's a problem. If you were, when you graduate, if you earn 100K, but the average is 200, you're not going to be happy. But if you earn 60K and the average is 20K, you're going you're gonna to feel like a king. That's what's happening. They've reduced from 100 to 60, the military. They are worse than 10 years ago, but they're better than the average. And so they feel like good. They have a motorcycle. And so they get to their neighborhoods with a motorcycle where anybody has a, nobody has motorcycles. They will do public transport. And so they feel like kings, but actually they don't find milk. They don't find eggs. And so it's, it's not good quality life, but they're better than the average. And that's a problem. Well, it's, it's an awful situation. I, I'm so sorry that you guys are going through this. And um, I, I hope that that change can come from within. And like you said, with the support of the international community on a more individual level to, to people listening to this, uh, I'll definitely include the, the Venmo code. Where is that money going to go again? Just so people know. It's called Alimenta la Solidaridad. It's a nonprofit uh, organization that feeds starving children. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing your story and uh, joining me here. Thanks, Mike, uh, for giving us the opportunity to share our views on Venezuela and, and raise awareness of what's happening there. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, shoot us an email at andercastla at gmail.com.